0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually Podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth
1: Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're now well into 2023, and it's turning into a unique wealth planning environment. We're seeing volatility in depressed asset values and continued generosity in the level of federal estate tax exemption. Most intriguingly, rising interest rates are bouncing hard off of generational interest rate lows. The effectiveness of many popular estate planning tools is being reviewed, and some out-of-season techniques are getting a new look. To help survey the landscape is Matthew Hochstedtler. He's a partner at David J. Simmons and Associates, which is based in Canton, Ohio and Naples, Florida. He's an tech fellow and well-qualified to help us think about the current environment. Welcome aboard, Matt. Thanks, Brazier. Glad to be here. We're going to dive into 2023 and estate planning and things like that. But before we do, tell us a little bit about your background and your legal practice. So I'm an estate planning attorney specializing in
2: serving high net worth individuals, And they're family businesses, family offices, and private trust companies. So we usually service folks in Florida and Ohio, but we
1: have clients around the country work with. So one of the fun things that uh, the way we met, I guess, was essentially on social media, more specifically Twitter. And so I love the fact that we went to Heckerling this past year and caught up in real life, which is something that I think a lot of people in our industry either take for granted or are surprised when it happens. But goes to show that you can meet people through all different ways now.
2: Yeah, I actually met several folks from social media in real life at the Lang. It was really great to look each other in the eye and yeah, meet at an interpersonal level. A lot of fun.
1: Cool. Well, so we were both down there learning about the state of the art and a lot of things that are happening in the estate planning world, and the wealth management world, et cetera. But I think the talk of the town was really about the increased interest rate environment that we're now living in and the impact that it has on the gizmos that we use to help people think about estate tax planning and maybe reducing that liability. Give us a little sense of where we're coming from on that. Sure. So, I mean, we're coming from
2: historic lows. So from my sense, folks seem to have a really short memory. You know, something happened in the last handful of years. I think it's always been that way. So it's hard to remember the times before these, yeah, near zero interest rates. We've got people with Mortgages under 3%, and it's really kind of changed their outlook. But now, in the last year or so, we've had rates creeping up to being really high, and inflation, like on an annual basis, has been quite high, you know, 6 7%. So it's a real huge shift compared to what everyone's used to and what everyone's sense of the way it's always been is.
1: So when we're dealing with interest rates, uh, it's important, I think, to remind people that the IRS sets the applicable federal rate. Maybe take us through a little bit about what that means.
2: The applicable federal rate, that's what the IRS says the interest rate will be when there are certain types of transactions. So the, the AFR is divided up into three separate rates. Those are based on the duration of a transaction. So if an obligation is going to be zero to three years, it's going to be a short-term rate, you know, three to nine years, midterm rate and longer, the long-term rate. So that's just what they've determined as the prescribed rate for those categories, specifically the loans, what we're talking about.
1: The idea then that the IRS is publishing a rate, so a lot of people say, oh, well, are we doing anything sort of fancy or weird? Not really. The IRS is giving us the rate under which lots of structures come to pass. And we've been in a low interest rate environment. Maybe take us through a few things that were particularly powerful in a low interest rate environment so we can contrast that with what's going to be popular in the next little bit. Sure. And I guess just to set some context on this,
2: the IRS isn't setting interest rates with the AFR. I mean, they are sort of, but they're more responding to the market conditions and what the actual interest rate is. They're not controlling interest rates in the same way the Fed is. And then There's a separate interest rate, which is related to the AFR called the 7520 rate. And we rely on this significantly for certain estate planning techniques. And it's tied to the AFR because it's 120% the midterm rate to the nearest two tenths. And the midterm rate is the three to nine year rate. And to provide some additional context on that, back in 2021, it was under 2%. It was under probably 1%, actually. And now, the 75-20 rate for March is 4.4%. I mean, it's significantly higher than it was, but in the big scheme of things, it's not the stagflation numbers we saw back in the
1: 80s. And so the, the implication of these low interest rates, when we're talking about maybe shifting the growth of assets out of somebody's estate and allowing them to grow unencumbered with estate tax, et cetera, things like intrafamily loans and installment sales and GRATs and charitable lead trusts they really thrive well in a low interest rate environment. Absolutely, because
2: when you have a low interest rate as kind of your hurdle, it's easy for assets to grow faster than that to easily leverage that transaction.
1: So against that backdrop, we're now seeing interest rates. They've gone up both at the behest of the Fed and the yield curve, etc. And the IRS has responded to that by resetting the AFR, which is what we were talking about before. Maybe take us through a little bit about what you're telling your clients now about how to either continue to use the interest rate with past popular techniques and maybe a couple of other techniques that might work even better in a rising interest rate environment. Sure. And
2: I think you're right to suggest that, I hate to call them the old techniques, but the ones we used last year or the year before, they're still very relevant. They're relevant because even though people are looking at what the interest rates are, there's been a corresponding decrease in asset values. For low asset values, a lot of these strategies still work really, really well. So like you mentioned, the installment sales to intentionally defective grantor trusts. I mean, that's where we'll have like a wealthy client create a trust for their descendants or for their spouse and then sell that, make a seed gift to that trust, about 10% of the transaction value, and then sell an asset to that trust then the asset will generate income to the trust. The trust will then pay off the note to the client and through that cash flow process, really ship the asset and all we grow in that asset out of their estates and effectively throws the value for the amount of the note they took back in return. And that works well because if you've got a low interest rate on the note, you know a couple percent, but the asset's growing at 8, 10, 20, I mean, some closely held businesses can grow at staggering multiples. And that works really, really well because you've shifted tons of growth outside the person's taxable state. What have you gotten back? The note, which is never going to go up, but then, you know, some paltry interest rate generating income on that value. So that's still a great technique because since the values are lower, then the thinking is that the corresponding growth in the future is going to be that much higher. So that's the bet on that technique.
1: I was going to say that the volatility that you're talking about of the underlying asset, if you can do estate planning at depressed values, that's kind of what you're talking about. And the interest rate, which helps you to lever off of those depressed values, it's gone up, but it hasn't gone up so much that it's not compelling still.
2: Exactly. So rates in the 4%, they're higher, but in the vast scheme of things, they're not Prohibitively high and paired with low valuations, transactions are still pretty attractive with those economics.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we were talking about this separately, but if we go back a year or two, the interest rates were generationally low and grand slam home run types of conditions, whereas now we might merely be in home run type of conditions.
2: Yeah, or even hitting doubles or
1: triples. I mean, that's not bad. Exactly. So to underscore that while interest rates are rising, some of the, let's call it last year or the year before techniques haven't just gone completely out of the window. It's just that other techniques that maybe not may not have been in vogue are starting to get another look. Well, for me
2: personally, I've been a lawyer since 2009. These are things I read about in law school, but but the interest rates have been low enough in my career that they haven't been as attractive as some of these other like the sales to defective grant costs, like GRATs. Those have been more popular recently because of the lower interest rates.
1: So let's focus on this higher interest rate environment. I think any of us who have a crystal ball, uh, I know I have where anytime I have a thought about where interest rates are going to go, I've been completely wrong. But it looks like interest rates are going up with my usual disclaimers about any sort of prediction I make should probably do something the opposite. But if we think that interest rates are going to be up from here what are some of the techniques what, what is the thought process behind using a higher interest rate from an estate planning context and then what are some of the buzzwords or acronyms that may follow that
2: when you have a higher interest rate you want to look at techniques where like the economics are calculated usually these things are valued in such a way that either the interest rate causes the value retained by the client to be higher so it's treated like they're consuming more or that the remainder interest is higher if there's like a charitable deduction involved. So it's important to consider how the economics are calculated for these various techniques, and then what a higher interest rate is going to do to that calculation. So I guess specifically, we're talking about QBIRT's, Qualified Personal Residence Trusts. This is a technique where somebody takes their house and they put it into a trust for a term of years And as long as they survive that term of years, then at the end, it goes to their beneficiaries, their children, grandchildren, you know, whatever, usually the kids. Of course, if they died before, then technique sort of blows up and it's includable in their estate. But this is helpful in a high interest rate environment because the interest rate goes into factoring what the lifetime interest is that's retained by the settlor of these trusts. So a high 75 rate means that there's a high value retained interest and a low value remainder. So when I create this trust for my clients, my clients gift their residence to the trust. If the residence is worth like a million bucks, they're not doing a million dollar gift to the trust because they're retaining the right to live there for some term years, 20 years, let's say. And so it's really only that remainder interest, whatever's left after 20 years, that constitutes the gift. This is the present value of that. So Yeah, high interest rate is a lot more of that value is allocated to the lifetime interest or the the interest retained to the, the settlor and a lot lower value allocated to the remainder interest. So it's a much smaller gift than it would have been a couple of years ago.
1: And that allows you to use more of your gift exemption for estate tax purposes in other things. And therefore, you're getting a little bit more leverage out of that estate tax exemption good time now to remind people that the estate tax exemption is $12.9 million per person. It's going to go up a little bit more for the next few years until the end of 2025. That's also generationally generous. And so when combined with volatility and market values with the state of the interest rate world right now, you've got kind of an interesting, good, perfect storm for the purpose of estate planning if your goal is to avoid the estate tax as much as possible.
2: absolutely. Even if you're a client who gave away all their exemption between last year and this year, you gained an extra $900,000 of exemption, $1.8 per couple, that's a ton. You can do a lot of additional planning this year that you might not have been
1: able to do last year. So the CUPERT, the Qualified Personal Residence Trust, that's a tool in the toolbox, an acronym, some of the alphabet soup that we throw around here. That's probably going to be pretty popular in the next year or so. Another thing, especially for those clients that are charitably inclined, is the charitable remainder trust. Maybe go through the analysis a little bit of how the rising interest rate environment makes that even more effective.
2: So for this, you get a charitable deduction, an income tax deduction, or a gift to a charitable remainder trust. And your income tax deduction is determined based on a computation using the 7520 rate and life estate factors from the regs. So this is just a table in the treasury regulations. The way this works out is a larger seventy-five twenty rate results in a larger present value and a larger income tax deduction. So that's an attractive option now. For the same amount of money gifted to a charitable remainder trust, you'll get a larger deduction now than you would have two years ago.
1: So the increased deduction is great on the income tax side of things. The client gets a nice deduction, this often pairs well with a liquidity event, or if you're selling a business and you're you're recognizing some big pop in your tax return. But it also is interesting because for those clients that are concerned about income later on, the trust itself provides an income stream back to the client. Absolutely.
2: There are two flavors of this. There's the charitable remainder annuity trust, the CRAT, we like to call it in our alphabet soup parlance. And that's where the lord takes back like a fixed dollar value, $10,000 a month, for instance. The other flavor is the charitable remainder unit trust. And it's a fixed percentage, but it's a variable amount of money. So it could be 5%. Let's say they get back every month or every year it would be. You could take the pay however you want. But yeah, that's going to fluctuate based on the value of the assets in the trust. It's valued annually. Generally, you know, when there's higher inflation and a higher interest rate, those values will grow quicker and you get to participate in the upside of that growth with the unit trust because it's a fixed percentage. Whereas if the fixed dollar value of the CRAT, then you're stuck. Your interest is going to be worth less each year. There's high inflation. So lots of clients are choosing that CRUT option to get that inflation protection.
1: So remind me too, I mean, this is also an interesting vehicle for people who have sort of low basis, highly appreciated stock because you get capital gains avoidance. Have I got that right? Yeah. You
2: can transfer assets that are low basis and uh, avoid the capital gains exposure on that by transferring to the trust. That's a charitable entity. So by avoiding the capital gains taxes, you get a larger pot of money from which to take your income stream and can be a lot better off economically. By using that strategy for sure,
1: the Cupert and the uh, charitable remainder trust. We think those are going to be getting increasingly popular in 2023 and going forward. How are you advising clients with the sunsetting that's happening at the federal level in 2026? Uh, we talked about how the difference between 2022 and 2023 there was additional exemption. You and I are both probably trying to read the tea leaves politically to see whether this sunsetting of the federal tax exemption, which for listeners, essentially, let's call it the $12.9 million per person, looks like it would be cut roughly in half at the end of 2025, so you would have less capacity to do these different types of gifting strategies in many ways. At the same time, we're coming off of many different examples of how Congress either extends or even increases the capabilities of estate tax avoidance within the statute. How do you get people to think about that, either to get them to do things or otherwise take advantage of these great conditions right now, even though there's some modicum of certainty, I guess, at 2026?
2: What we're telling clients is for those who are able to, our highest net worth clients who don't need... Twelve point nine million dollars per person right now. Give it away. Give it to trusts. Allocate generation skipping transfer tax exemption to those trusts, so they'll be protected from estate taxes and generation skipping transfer taxes for well forever under current law, as long as your trust can allow for to stay around forever. But it's a harder conversation for those clients who are not significantly above the combined exemption amount. Husband and wives we're talking about because for those folks. They're not in a position to give away the entire amount of the enhanced exemption we have now because they need that money. They need it to live. For those clients we're representing, that <laughs> their best options might be something like flats for each other. So spousal lifetime access trusts set up for each other, or maybe even just one spouse kind of depending on their financial arrangement. So they at least one of them has continued access to those funds that are given away. If you're a Floridian, that's an especially attractive proposition because now there's a statute that permits the lord to be a beneficiary after the donee spouse passes away. It's a really attractive feature, I think. But otherwise, you know, if they're not even in a position to give that much, then focus on those assets that are going to grow the most and give those away. Sell them to irrevocable trusts that have GST exemption allocated to them. Do what you can. What makes this difficult is we have 12.9 million of exemption. Half of that's gonna go away. If we give away half of it now, at the end, when it's reduced, it's treated like you gave away the half that you're left with, if that makes sense. So that's what makes this just especially tricky. So people have to be really strategic and thoughtful about which planning they engage in and which assets they use. So it's really important more than ever to have that team approach the attorney, the accountant, the financial advisor, Business consultants to get the best educated guess you can on these strategies.
1: We're running through it all the time with clients. Where the choice of assets important, getting something started is important. But at the same time, as you said, you know, if you gave away only six million dollars and all of a sudden it drops back down to six, you haven't really done anything. But you know, you want to try to take advantage somehow of the generosity that's currently in place. It's as much a financial planning exercise as anything else. To understand what you have and what you need to live comfortably going forward and to avoid that King Lear problem of giving too much away and then all of a sudden you don't have the resources to do what you wanted to do. Exactly. So, as we wind up here, we talked a little bit about getting the team approach going and getting on all fours as far as where your personal situation is if you're a client and then surrounding it with the expertise. What are your other best practices? when you're dealing with clients in terms of maybe even timing or getting started early, those types of things?
2: Well, getting started early is going to be absolutely critical. As we look toward the scheduled reduction at the end of 2025, I really think that law firm capacity is going to be a a serious issue. If clients wait into some of these planning strategies, I'm concerned their lawyers, other law firms in general, aren't going to have the capacity to help all these people do last minute planning. It's just, I don't think that's going to work. If a client is serious about this, it's going to be really important to do it sooner rather than later. It's easier to top things off as exemption increases next year and the year following than it is to do you know, wholesale large plans, large transactions at the 11th hour.
1: I'd add on to that too, that it's not just the law firms that are going to have capacity problems, but the accountants, and this is, I think, understated, but the valuation firms are going to be completely swamped. And for those who are sort of new to this, having a third-party valuation firm valuing the assets that are going into these structures is 1,000% vital in order to give these structures the durability to withstand any future scrutiny. And you can't just have a note from mom saying that (laughs) your business is worth X amount. You've got to go through a third party valuation firm in order for a gift to happen. So, not just the law firms that'll go crazy in 2025 getting stuff done, but the ancillary components of these things, valuation firms especially, they're going to be triply overwhelmed on this stuff. So, good reason to get stuff going early. And valuation is
2: an expensive, time consuming process, very labor intensive. So, you're absolutely correct on that. Yeah, clients should meet with their advisors frequently ask, what can I do now? Just constantly evaluate their financial position, their estate position, their tax position, because looking at it now, keeping a pulse on it is going to help them immensely if they actually want to move the needle.
1: Excellent. Matt, this is really informative. Thank you for coming on. How do we stay in touch with you? How do people who hear this show get in touch?
2: Best way is on Twitter. I'm at M-R-H-E-S-Q, or on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there too. Matt Hostetler. Last name is spelled H-O-C-H-S-T-E-T-L-E-R. Not the way you think.
1: I can attest to that because I've spelled it wrong, I think, 14 consecutive times. So I will hopefully (laughs) never do that again. That information is going to be in the show notes. But Matt, thank you very much for being on and continued success. Thank you, Fraser. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guest.